So in 250 AD, the Roman emperor changed and the new emperor issued, issued an edict throughout the Roman Empire that every Roman citizen should pay homage to the Roman gods, whether or not they were a practicer of the Roman religion. About that same time, Cyprian became bishop of Carthage and realized the, uh, the significance of what had been set out from the emperor. And so this persecution began to take place throughout the Roman Empire. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily monolithic, but it was targeted at certain people in certain places. The Christian church had grown significantly by that time, so they couldn't, of course, demand everyone to have allegiance. But there was all kinds of compromise and challenge going on in this day. And about 257 A.D., Cyprian was finally called to account by the proconsul of his region in the Roman Empire. And the proconsul said this to the bishop. He said, The most sacred emperors Valerian and Galenius have thought fit to send me a letter in which they have commanded that those who do not observe the Roman religion must recognize the Roman right. I have therefore made inquiry concerning yourself. What answer do you give me? Cyprian says, I am a Christian and a bishop. I know no other God but the one true God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. This God we Christians serve. To him we pray day and night for ourselves and for all men and for the safety of the emperors themselves. The proconsul then responded, Do you persist in this decision? And Cyprian said, A right decision taken before God cannot be changed. And with that, Cyprian was sent into exile for another year, spent that year in exile, and then he was summoned again. The proconsul this time had changed, but he was summoned again to be brought to, uh, to carry out the fullness of his sentence because of his crime. So on September 14th, 258 AD, the new proconsul Galerius asked him, are you Thasius Cyprianus? He responded, I am. The proconsul then said, the most reverend emperors have ordered you to perform the rites. Cyprian answered, I will not. Galerius, consider your own interest. He responded, Cyprian responded, do as you have been ordered. In so clear a case, there is no need for deliberation. Then the proconsul said, you have long persisted in your sacrilegious views and have joined yourself to many other abominable persons in a conspiracy. You've set yourself up as an enemy of the gods of Rome and of our religious practices. Since you have been convicted as an instigator and leader of a most atrocious crime, you will be an example for all those whom in your wickedness you have gathered to yourself. Our laws will be vindicated by your blood. Thasius Cyprian is sentenced to die by the sword. And Cyprian responds, thanks be to God. And then we read that Cyprian was taken to the place of execution where he removed his outer cloak, spread it on the ground so that he could kneel on it. Next, he removed his inner garment and gave it to his deacons. Then he stood erect and began waiting for his executioner. When the executioner came, Cyprian told his friends to give the man 25 gold pieces. And so the blessed Cyprian went to his death and his body was laid out nearby to satisfy the curiosity of the pagans. We're in Daniel chapter 3 tonight, where three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, face a very similar circumstance to what Cyprian faced in the third century AD. 
Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the empire of the day, was seeking to consolidate his power and authority in an empire that had many different nations and tongues. And so he built a statue, a golden statue, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, and commanded all of the leaders of the empire to come to Dura, this place, and to bow down and pay homage to this statue, and therefore to the gods of Babylon, as a means of consolidating the power of the empire. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in a story that most of you have known since you were children, if you grew up in the church, this is a very well-known story, refuse, like Cyprian, to bow down to this idol. We're going to look at this story with the story of Cyprian as well in the background. Because we don't live in a world like Cyprian lived in or like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived in. Most of us tomorrow are not going to be demanded to make a profession of our faith that if we make it will, will, will mean that we're going to die in a fiery furnace or by the sword. We live in a context culturally where our faith has been in the dominant, no longer necessarily the ascendant, you know, dominant view of our day, but certainly one that continues to be well accepted. Our president still says, God bless these United States of America after every speech. And this is the context in which we find ourselves. So what I want to do is look at this radical context of faith in Daniel 3 and see what lessons that we can learn for ourselves in a context that's not quite the same. Certainly there are Christians today in China or North Korea or in some of the Muslim world who are living in these very kinds of contexts. But that doesn't happen to be our context here in Boston. And I want to look at this context and ask what what is it that we can learn about the life of faith that we actually are called to live and seeking to live by looking at someone like Cyprian or someone like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who make this confession of faith. You know, at the end of the story, we know that the story, they go into the furnace, they're delivered from the furnace, they're brought out, there's not a hair that's singed on their bodies, their clothes haven't been touched by the flames, and Nebuchadnezzar sums up the, 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 the theological significance of this story in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 3. And he says this, he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own. The question that I want to ask is what kind of faith does it take to yield up your body? Which is essentially what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, right? They knew the consequences. They were very clear. If you don't bow down, Nebuchadnezzar said, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Cyprian knew the consequences. They were clear. Death by the sword. What did we learn for our own lives of faith by examining a context as radical as Daniel 3 that would lead to yielding up your body instead of giving up allegiance to the Lord? First thing is in verses 16 through 18. These great words from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the showdown is kind of at its height, and they say in verses 16 through 18, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Basically, this is contempt of court. They're not willing to make a big defense. They just say something simple. 
If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. What they demonstrate clearly is a fundamental basic belief that God will deliver them. Our God can deliver us, they say. Our God will deliver us with confidence, they say that. And then they say something else, don't they, in verse 18. But if not, be it known to you that we will not bow down in any case. They demonstrate a confidence in their God's ability to rescue them and to deliver them. In fact, they have much evidence from what's gone on already that since they've been in exile, they've been, they've been uh, fed vegetables, but you know, fatter than everybody else, and they've been raised to this place of prominence at the end of chapter 2. They have much evidence to believe that God will deliver them, and so they say so. We believe that he will. But then they also show this tremendous humility in the midst of that and say, but if not, we will not bow down. In other words, they they show this kind of paradox of confidence and humility at the same time, trusting not in some certain outcome of their situation, though they have confidence that this will be the case, but trusting more deeply in the God who rules over their situation and their lives. Cyprian shows, doesn't he, in the story that I recounted for you at the beginning, that same kind of quiet confidence before his potential executioners. A confidence that trusts in the God who can deliver, but a God who may not deliver in the way that he would want him to. They're trusting in the God behind the outcome, not in the outcome itself. And so they lay themselves in. So this is one of the things about this kind of faith, is trusting in this God who delivers. And this faith not only trusts in the God who delivers, but it says something else. There's something else that goes on, not just a trust that he's going to deliver us, but also a deep conviction that this God and being with him is better than life itself. The equation is quite simple. If I have God, I have everything. If I have everything but I don't have God, I have nothing. That's essentially what biblical faith says. I'd rather die faithful to you. I'd rather lose my life being faithful to you than live and compromise my faith in you and actually lose you in the midst of that process. Or as Psalmist says in Psalm 84, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I'd rather have you. Psalm 63, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Think about the compromises that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were tempted with. They had been raised to this prominent position in the Babylonian Empire. All it took was one little bowing of the knee to this golden statue that they knew was no God at all. And they would maintain their position of prominence and security and blessing in that foreign land. Think on the same note of Cyprian. Risen to prominence in the church leading a faithful flock. You know, and there were many Christians in the third century who did compromise, who hired some pagan to go make sacrifices on their behalf and got the certificate that they needed to show that they had done so themselves. Cyprian, all you had to do was just say one thing. Remember what the 
proconsul said to him? Consider your own interests. I think Cyprian had. I think he knew that life with unfaithfulness to his Lord was not worth death and faithfulness to his God. He knew that choosing in this moment was an easy choice to choose the God who is worth everything. These compromises come to us all the time in our lives. They came to Jesus, as we read in Matthew 4. Jesus, Satan takes him and and shows him all the kingdoms of this world and all of their glory. And says, if you'll just bow down to me, you you can have authority over all these things. And Jesus says, no, no. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I will not bow down. God is worth everything. Everything. That's what faith in this radical context shows us. That sometimes faith in our own context, which isn't nearly as radical, can keep hidden. God is worth everything. And so they jump. You know, we like to go swimming as a family. We've got four young kids. And this past February, we were at this hotel with a really small pool. But we spent a lot of time, far more time than I wish we had, in this swimming pool. And uh, and we went swimming. And one of the things that we did with our kids, only one of whom can swim is obviously dad or mom gets in the middle of the pool and the kids get on the edge and then they jump off the edge of the pool into your arms. Now, the children know, don't they, that there's no way, if dad's not there to get them, that they're going to survive what they jump into. They're jumping into something that in their own strength and their own ability, there's absolutely no way out. But because I was there or Mandy was there and we were there to catch them, they jumped with confidence into our arms to be caught in the middle of the pool. That's what we see in Cyprian. That's what we see in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Trusting that God will deliver them, knowing that God is worth more than anything else to them in their lives. And so therefore jumping into a situation to face the sword or to face the fiery furnace, which they knew that in and of themselves, in their own strength, they had absolutely no way to get out of. And so they jump. Now what I want to do next is say, is their context really that different from your context and from my context? What does Jesus say to those of us who seek to follow him? If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever what? Loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, will save it. Jesus calls us in the Lucan version of that same uh, statement to take up our cross daily. That when we come to him in faith, what that means is that we're laying down our lives, that we're facing a kind of death. A cross is a death. It's a laying down. It's a giving up. Pouring out. Dying daily to myself, to my interests, to my privileges. It's saying that I'm not going to bow down to the golden statue, the one golden statue that is most dominant for each one of us, which is simply me. The me I'm so prone to worship. The me that I'm so prone to follow. The me that I'm so prone to preserve and to protect and to defend. 
And when we come to Jesus, he says, no, lay that down. Lay that down at my feet and grab on to me. Hold on to me. And die to yourself day by day by day. Let's try to drill this down a little bit. By little acts of loving your spouse. Of not demanding that justice be done when you've been wronged. Of going to visit someone who won't pay you anything back. Of choosing to honor and to bless your coworker when you'd much rather just undermine them and gossip about them. These little steps, these five-minute-at-a-time kinds of steps, which entail a kind of death, a pouring out of your life, a jumping off the edge into the arms of Jesus. When we do this, we do engage a true kind of trial. There is a true kind of suffering that comes with the cross, obviously. And this is real. And we feel it grating against our own flesh day by day as we choose this path of love, this voluntary path of suffering, which is what love is, ultimately, of giving up our lives in order to gain them. And we lay them down. And at the same time, we know that this way, as Jesus says, leads us to life. Lose your life and you will save it. That as we pour out our lives, even to death like this, in the little things day by day, that Jesus says, I will pour my life into you. This goes back to the God is worth everything. And I'll give you myself and my spirit and my my presence will be upon you. And you'll know life more than anything you've ever tasted before. That's the paradoxical nature of the cross. As though at the same time it's a death in one sense. It's also the giving of abundant life in the other. And at the same time. Through death that we might live. And so we come to experience in the day-to-day trial of the cross that we've taken up, that this way of the cross, as we said at the wedding yesterday, is in fact the way of life that fills us, that deepens us, that enlivens us in a way that pursuing me and my gain would never do in the day-to-day. God pours into us. And so just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were called to jump, and just as Cyprian was called to jump in a really radical context, you and I are called every single day of our lives to trust Jesus, that he'll deliver us, that he'll come to us, that he'll give us life, and to jump in the same way. By loving the people we live with. By loving the people in our office. By all these mundane and little things to die this death daily that we might live in him. And this kind of faith is supported by two things in this text, in this story that we see. This kind of dying daily, this kind of giving up to live. God is with us, Daniel 3 tells us deeply, in the midst of the trial. In the midst of the trial, what is it that Nebuchadnezzar sees? He looks and these three men have been thrown into the furnace. He says, Whoa, there's not three, there's four. And the other one's appearance is like a son of the gods. And he directly refers to him later in verse 29, or in verse 28, that God sent his angel. You see, the the point of a life of faith, of a cross-shaped life, is not that we're delivered from the fire, but it's that we're saved in the midst of the fire. 
It's in the trials that we find the presence of Christ. Take Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, the faithful one, the deacon, the one who proclaimed boldly the word of God. Being stoned. His version of the cross. His fiery furnace. And what does he see? He looks up. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And it says that he's filled with the Holy Spirit in that moment. God's presence dwelling in him and upon him. Or Isaiah 43, I think we were going to sing it, but I skipped it. (laughs) When you pass through through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the files, you will not be burned. Because I am the Lord your God, your Savior. 1 Peter 4, that when you encounter trials, when you encounter insults for the name of Jesus, it says the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. We're not necessarily saved from the fire, but in the midst of the fire. God is with us. And what a tremendous encouragement that is to you and to me to actually begin to live this life of cross-shaped faith. To jump out of our selfishness into the arms of Jesus. And to begin to walk with him day by day. Because he's with us in the midst of those places. And those trials then do not have any power ultimately over us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that they work for our glory. They work, they they achieve for us an abundant weight of glory. This that far outweighs all the trials. Or in Romans 8, a passage many of you know well that none of these things can separate us from the love of Christ. In them we are more than conquerors, he says. Because neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor all these things can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with us in the midst of these things. And he will deliver us publicly. At the end of Daniel 3, they bring the three men out of the fire, don't they? Nothing's been singed. The clothes are still intact. And who's gathered around them at the end of this chapter? But all of those who have been gathered at the beginning of the chapter, all the leaders of the nation, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors, they gathered together and they saw that the fire had not touched them. They had been delivered miraculously by God. God delivered them in front of the powers of their day. So much so that when Nebuchadnezzar challenged them in verse 15, he said in verse 15, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That in verse 29, he concludes by saying, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. The one who mocked him has now come to praise him. Because of the the deliverance of God for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. God will deliver you. But what about Cyprian? Stabbed through with the sword. What about John the Baptist? Beheaded in prison. What about James? Martyred. Acts chapter 12. What about Paul and Peter, if history is correct and the tradition is right? Murdered. Martyred for their faith. What about Polycarp? And all the martyrs who have gone, who have come since then. What about Jesus? Jesus who goes to the cross. Jesus who loses his life. 
in faithfulness to the will of his father. And three days later, and it's not three days for Cyprian, it's not three days for Paul, it's not three days for Polycarp, it's not three days probably for you, and it's probably not three days for me, but three days later for Jesus, he was raised. He was delivered. He was vindicated. And he appeared to many. And we too will be raised. We too will be delivered. And as these three men said, if not, O king, if not in this present trial, if not saved from this death, then we will be delivered through this death. And as Christians who follow Jesus, we have absolute and utter security and certainty in the power of that resurrection that was exhibited in Jesus three days after his crucifixion that will be exhibited in us and in this world absolutely certainly. And yes, you can bet your life on that. Jesus has called us to take up our cross. Jesus has called us to jump into his faithfulness into his life and to die daily to know that life and the fact that he will be with us in the midst of the trial and the fact that he will deliver us absolutely and certainly through the trial is all the more encouragement to us to be a people of the cross to be a people who jump into him who lay down our lives day by day and know the fullness of life in this world, in the day-to-day trial of the cross, the life of God working in and upon us, and in the world to come as we're raised with him. So let's be a people of the cross. Amen.